Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, April 5th, we are studying Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. The women who were witnesses to Jesus' death and burial come to the Lord's tomb on the first day of the week. And although what they discover there fills them with alarm and fear, it is exactly what Jesus had said. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us Dr. James Veltz. Dr. Veltz is professor of New Testament at Concordia Seminary, St. Louis, and he is also the author of the two-volume commentary on the Gospel of Mark in the Concordia Commentary Series from Concordia Publishing House. Dr. Veltz, welcome to Sharper Iron. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. By the way, let me just comment on your opening words here, uh, which don't relate necessarily to our topic, but they do in a very large sense. And that is you were talking about the power of the gospel and the resurrection. I just read this morning that the uh, uh, senator from Georgia, Reverend Warnock, uh, said in a tweet that the important thing about about Easter was not the resurrection of Jesus, but about the new possibilities that we have for our lives. This could not be more wrong. And he has since apparently deleted that tweet, because if Jesus is not risen, our faith is vain, we are still in our sins, and we are as those who have no hope. No one should be deceived by modernist ideas that the, that the uh, Easter message is essentially about some possibilities for our lives apart from, apart from, the physical resurrection of Jesus. I mean, that, that is, that's quite perverse. And I'm really glad the way you started this broadcast, talking about, um, uh, you know, the surety of the gospel and, and the resurrected Christ. Uh, everybody should be listening to this. Thank you for that. I, I saw that tweet as well, and it was quite shocking to see something like that from someone who calls himself a reverend. I'm glad to hear that he's deleted that. And, and since you brought it up, one of the questions that I had written down for us to discuss is this, this matter of Jesus' resurrection. We're going to hear the angels say to the women, he has risen. And you know, yesterday was Easter, and we exchanged that greeting, Christ is risen, he is risen indeed. We say those words so often. Sometimes perhaps we, we forget just exactly what we are confessing. So uh, dig into that a little bit more for us, Dr. Veltz. What is it that we confess when we say Jesus is risen? Well, we confess that he actually bodily rose from the dead. And, um, you know, as Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians 15, that this makes all the difference in the world um, because if he is not risen, our entire faith is a fraud. Now, by the way, I don't know if you get the Wall Street Journal or not, but in Saturday's edition, well, it's a kind of weekend edition, and I would like our listeners to be aware of this, 
there is just a dynamite article on the front page of the review section. So this would be for Saturday, April 3rd, Wall Street Journal Review. And uh, it's written by a, um, uh, let's see here, Auxiliary Bishop of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. And um, it's entitled Recovering the Strangeness of Easter. This is a fabulous article about uh, the necessity of the bodily resurrection of Jesus and the fact that it was not some mental idea that, that the disciples were going forth with, but that they came with the gospel of the actual new life in the resurrected Christ, which conquered the, the known world. Um, in fact, I, today I'm going to write a, uh, a letter into the editor and tell them, uh, publish this piece every Saturday before Easter. Just like, I don't know if you're aware of this, the Wall Street Journal publishes a piece, it's a little bit iffy, but uh, a piece before Christmas uh, every year, something that was first published in about 1948 or something uh, about the meaning of Christmas. It's a little iffy, but this piece is unbelievable. I, I mean, uh, uh uh, the fact that they would publish this in a secular paper, I, I'm, I'm so impressed. Um, well, you know, now let me just spin off on that a little bit. I preached yesterday at Zion Lutheran Church in Fort Wayne for Easter. And uh, the theme of my sermon was this, and I think this hits your um, focus here uh, quite well. I started out by saying uh, at the beginning, Christ is risen. And then the people responded, he is risen indeed, alleluia. And just as they finished that, he is risen indeed, alleluia, I broke in and I said, but just how do you know that? Mm. Did you see him with your eyes? Did you handle him with your hands? And then I said, this is why you believe you believe because of the witness of the word, the witness of the word of the young man at the tomb in uh, uh, Mark 16. But that young man's witness, and this is the important thing, that young man's witness is built upon the witness of Jesus and his absolute, solid, reliable, true word that he always utters. And so in the sermon, I just went through. I said, in this gospel, Jesus predicts that when the disciples go into Jerusalem before Palm Sunday, they'll find a young colt tied and people will resist giving it, and it is so. Jesus sends two disciples on Maundy Thursday into Jerusalem to prepare the Passover, and he predicts that a man carrying a jar of water will meet them, and it is so. He predicts that that man will lead them to a house with an upper room all laid out, all decked out for a Passover celebration, and it is so. He predicts that he will... Uh, uh, be uh, uh, handed over to the Jewish leadership, 
And it is so. He predicts the disciples will deny him and run away, and it's so. Peter will deny him three times, and it's so that he will die. And then, then I said, and Jesus at Mark 8, 31, 9, 31, 10, 33, and 4, and 14, 28, predicts that he will rise again on the third day, and the young man's statement is founded upon that, and it says, yes, that too is so. And that promise of our Lord, who has never led anybody astray and has always had a true statement, prediction of what is going to happen, um, That's why the young man says in 16.7, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. And now comes the critical words, Pastor. Just as he told you. Just as he told you. That is why we believe in this, because we believe in a Lord who always speaks the truth. And by the way, by the way, this is precisely why the ending of Mark at 16.8 is appropriate. We're going to go on and talk about that later in the show. But let me just say right now, this is precisely why the ending is appropriate, because the ending of Mark with the women frightened, hearing only this statement at the tomb is, you might say, the way we experience the resurrection. In other words, we have not handled Jesus. We have not seen him with our eyes. We have not heard him speak uh, with our ears. We have not put our hands into his side. All right. What do we have? We have the witness of the word which is founded upon the witness of our Lord himself, who has never led us astray. So this, the, the ending of Mark is absolutely powerful and is probably, it's probably aimed, I mean, we don't know this for sure, but it's probably aimed at Christians in the first century, probably in the 60s, uh, in Rome, who were starting to undergo persecution. And their view was something like this. You know, we we want to be faithful Christians. We want to hold on. We want to confess our faith. But if only we had been there. And the answer of the Gospel of Mark is, it's no different than it always was. What did the women have? They had the promise of the young or the word of the young man founded upon the promise of Jesus. And that's precisely what you have. That's precisely what you have. And uh, uh, I mean, I, I think this is why the gospel of Mark is sort of the gospel for tough times. It's the gospel for tough times. When, when you are looking for sight, this gospel tells you, you don't see in order to believe, you believe in order to see. 
Pastor, you know, in uh, chapter 15 of Mark, when Jesus is on the cross and the people are deriding him uh, in verse 32, uh, the Christ, the King of Israel, let him come down now from the cross in order that we may see and believe. It's the only of the four Gospels that has that phraseology in order that we may see and believe. This is precisely what this gospel does not give you. You do not first see and believe. You first believe and then you see. And that's exactly the way it is at the, uh, in chapter 16. So in other words, I mean, just think of the word to the women. Go tell his disciples, even Peter, he is going before you into Galilee, there you will see him just as he told you. If you don't believe that word, you will not see him. Why? Because you won't go to Galilee. <laughs> but if you do believe the word, you will see him. This is, this is an awesome gospel that is, uh, <clears throat> uh, speaks, speaks to the problem of faith and sight um, in a way that no other gospel does. I, I better subside here. You can't get a word in edgewise. Well, that, I mean, that's a fantastic overview of the themes that we've been encountering throughout this gospel and how they really come together. And it's, it's really, I mean, it's eye-opening, pardon the pun, to see it in Mark. I mean, when I think of seeing and then, or believing and then seeing, I usually think of that gospel reading that we're going to hear next Sunday with Thomas, you know, and where Jesus says in John, blessed are those who have believed and have not seen. And yet it's right here in Mark too. And it's, it's really fantastic the way that he's been setting this up and how all those themes come together in this text so that the, the women are invited to believe and then see, and then how that comes to us today. You know, how, that, like you asked in your sermon yesterday, how do you know that Christ is risen? It is because of that word that came from Jesus and has been passed down through those witnesses to you and to me. I'm going to go ahead and read the text for us, Dr. Veltz, and, and we can keep digging into this theology and, and everything that Mark is doing as he sets this up. Again, we're in Mark now, 16. Now, let, me, let, me, let me just sure, let me go ahead. stop you here, because uh, I hate to compliment you excessively here, but you have hit <laughs> upon something really important. And that is the relationship between Mark and John. It's very interesting that the gospel that is closest to the gospel of John among the synoptics is the gospel of Mark. They are both dealing with the identical theme, but they are doing it from opposite ends of the stick. So, uh, Clement of Alexandria, who lived in the middle of the second century, A.D., said that the two Gospels with the genealogies were written first. So that's Matthew and Luke. Well, then, then he says, then was Mark and then was John. I think Clement is correct. And that and this is not any kind of kind of dopey synoptic problem thing about, you know, dependent literary dependencies. I'm just talking about the nature of how the story works. So both Mark and John are concerned with the seeing and believing problem. And you are very insightful there. 
to hit upon that statement with Thomas. Okay, now here's the difference. Mark does it, this is the way I like to describe it. Mark does it up from below. He has an extremely human Jesus, the Jesus who doesn't know who touched his robe when the woman sneaks up behind him with the issue of blood. He gets mad when people resist him and so on. It says in Mark 6, verse 5, that uh, when he went to his hometown, uh, he was not able to do any miracles on account of their unbelief, eh, except, uh, you know, heal a couple of people. Mm-hmm. So the picture is is exceedingly natural in Mark. And, um, uh, and, and so this works into the theme that we're talking about here. Namely, if you had been with him, it's not all that apparent that he was the son of God. I mean, look, when he, all anybody has to read is the story of the woman with the issue of blood. You compare that in Mark 5 to Matthew's take on that story, and all of the details that you know, uh, you know, about her sneaking up from behind and all the rest and Jesus looking around, uh, you know, who touched him and all that kind of stuff. That all comes from Mark. You look at Matthew, the thing is really a spare version. The woman comes up, she has to be healed, who wants to touch his cloak, and so on like that. But with Mark, you get, in chapter 5, this extremely human picture. In Matthew 9, extremely spare. All those details are not there. So it's so natural that the disciples actually say to Jesus, do you see the crowd uh, closing in on you, rubbing on you, and you asked who touched me? And then Mark says, and Jesus kept looking around to see. Now, when you have that, this is really the God of the universe walking our earth when he's looking around to see who touched him. So that's the picture that you get, this ambiguous picture in Mark hugely human, and at the same time, walks on water, stills the storm, casts out demons, uh, raises dead people, and so on like that. Well, that, that ambiguous, paradoxical picture is the way Mark approaches the problem, so that there's one sure thing, Jesus's word Jesus's word is never ambiguous this way. <clears throat> now, John does it the other way. So John's got the issue also of seeing and believing. But John gives the story with the mask ripped off all the time. So you see Jesus, it's like he's walking two feet above the ground or something like this. You know, the woman at the well says, we're waiting for the Messiah. He says, I am he, you know, and... Uh, uh, before Abraham was, I am. He's making statements like this. Uh, so, but you know what the theme is, just as you very astutely said, that thing from uh, the post-resurrection scene with Thomas about see- not seeing and yet believe. Well, here's the deal. <clears throat> you get to know who Jesus is by looking at the Gospel of John 
and seeing the mask ripped off, seeing what you might say the cover, this is a better way to say it, the cover taken away, and you get to see Jesus, who he truly is. But both those Gospels are running the same theme. And this is one of the reasons why you get these strange, uh, what would you say, these strange convergences, you know, at Jesus's hearing before the Sanhedrin in Mark 14, they accuse him that he is going to destroy this temple and in three days, you know, uh, build one not made with hands. Well, no other gospel has that business of destroy the temple and there's going to be a new temple and so on. John does in chapter two, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. So that, that, those like themes between those two, the second and the fourth gospel are really interesting this way. They're, they are what you might call the dramatic commentaries on the basic story. So Matthew gives you the basic story from kind of a Jewish perspective. Luke gives you the basic story more from a Gentile perspective. And then there are two dramatic takes on the story. And that's Mark and John, and they come from different ends. I mean, it's, you know, if we didn't know this was the Word of God, it would really be amazing, wouldn't it? it it's, it's absolutely incredible. Hmm. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And we're going to see how that dramatic retelling that Mark gives us here comes to its conclusion in these verses. We're going to pick that up on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFU. We're talking to Dr. Veltz about Mark 16, 1 to 8. We will be right back. Please stick around. Hi, this is Rahema Kavuga, Synod Relations Manager of Lutheran Church Extension Fund. Are you an investor looking to support the bold and loving work of LCMS churches? Is your church or organization ready to do bold and loving work? This year, we have a ripe opportunity to bring Christ to a hurting world. Discover the role you can play in this great work. Call 800-843-5233 or visit lcef.org. That's 800-843-5233, lcef.org. Welcome back to Sharp Iron. It is Monday, April 5th. We're studying Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8, with Dr. James Veltz. He's the professor of New Testament at Concordia Seminary, St. Louis, also the author of the two-volume commentary on the Gospel of Mark in the Concordia Commentary series. Dr. Veltz, we're looking at Mark 16, 1 to 8. Let me read the text, and we'll dig in further. No, no, when I'm going to se- stop here there. I'm going to okay. do you one better. I'm going to do you All one right. better. Let me recite the text for you. Please. I am, uh, I am part of the six-man troop that Concordia Seminary has that does an oral performance of the Gospel of Mark. You may have seen it. We've done it around St. Louis, and, uh, but we've done it all around the country, uh, California, uh, 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 to the east Massachusetts, and everything, all over the place. Uh, this last part, 16, 1 to 8, is uh, a part that I do. And indeed, yesterday, I mentioned that I preached yesterday. Yesterday, I actually did this for, we had a gospel procession. The cross went down, the book went down into the center aisle, and I did not go down. 
and I started in the chancel, and I recited the gospel as I walked down toward the book. And it sounds, when you hear it, when you hear it presented uh, embodied like that, it is completely different than silently reading it in a text. Let me now give you the first, if you're willing to do this, let me give you the first eight verses. Can I do this? Please do so. Okay. After the Sabbath had passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices in order that they might go and anoint him. And very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they come to the tomb after the sun had risen. And they began to say to themselves, who will roll away for us the stone from the door of the tomb? And upon looking up, they see that the stone is rolled away. It was a big one, you know. And upon going into the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right side, clothed in a white garment, and they became alarmed. And he says to them, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He's not here. Look, the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples, even Peter, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And upon going out, they fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had them in its grip. And they said nothing to anyone. They were afraid, you know. This is the word of the Lord. That's Thanks fantastic. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to Doesn't God. It, isn't it different when you hear it like that? Yeah. It really is. I mean, I was, I was, I was had my eyes off of the the text in front of me and just listening to it. And it, it is a to, to be able to listen to it, to hear it in that way with the the various emphases. As you were as you were speaking it, I, I picked up on what I think are some emphases, and I don't think we have time to talk about all of them. So I'm going to try to try to give you the ones that that seem to be most important. One of the first ones that I noticed, at least in the way that you were speaking it, was the time reference. Let's see. I think it's in verse two. The way the ESV yep. translates it is when the sun had risen. But it seems to me you had it at the very end of that verse and you, you paused for a second. And I think you said after the sun had risen. Now, very good that you picked that up. <clears throat> this is quite unique <clears throat> in Mark. Mark has a grammatical construction called a genitive absolute, which is with a participle. And he has this participle construction at the end of the verse. And it's the only place in the entire gospel that he puts that genitive absolute construction at the end of a sentence rather than at the beginning of the sentence or probably in the sentence. It is striking. If you know the Greek of Mark, when you come to that, you are thinking, well, my word, what is the business of this genitive absolute hanging off at the end like this? And, I mean, the only thing I can think of 
is that he is very subtly evoking Malachi about the son of righteousness rising with healing in his wings. So you have, uh, so I, I think it's quite improper to say something like, very early in the morning when the sun had risen, they came. It, it's not just that. It's very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they come to the tomb after the sun had risen. And that ought to be kicking off stuff in, you know, even if you don't make the connection to the Son of Righteousness rising with healing in his wings. Just, just the notion that after the sun had risen is kind of like after the S-O-N had risen, uh, you know, that should be in people's minds. I'm glad you picked up on that. Okay, give me your next one. Well, I mean, I'm just, I'm jumping forward a little bit. There was probably some stuff that I could have missed, but another one that stood out, especially with the way the ESV translates it, is in the words that the young man says to the women, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, is the way the ESV reads. You, you said, who is crucified. It is. Who was crucified is a completely wrong translation. That would be okay if there had been a so-called aorist participle there. This is not a statement about what happened in the past. This is a perfect participle, and it, it details a present current result. So when the young man is saying that to the women, he is saying, you seek Jesus the crucified one, i.e., the one who is in a crucified condition. Let's go back to Gospel of John. See the marks of the nails in my hands and the spear in my side. So Jesus always remains the crucified one. And to quote my former colleague when I taught at the Fort Wayne Seminary, my good friend Bill Weinrich, He's got a great way of saying this. He says the resurrection places the cross in power. It's not, it is not a negation of the cross. It is an empowering of the cross so that the forgiveness of sins is actually the case. A cruciform life is actually what the Christians are called uh, uh, called to to do to walk in the way of the Lord. This is an extremely uh, important point, and I'm glad I'm glad you picked up on it. Now, when I was doing the performance of the oral the oral presentation of this, <clears throat> the way I said it was, <clears throat> "You seek Jesus, who is crucified." And what I did is with each of my fingers, alternately, right finger to left palm, left finger to right palm, I touched the center of my palm like where the, you know, sort of like where nail prints would be. And uh, uh, I, I'm glad you picked up on that. This, it, the translation of the ESV is just flat out wrong on this in a in a way that is mm, theologically bad. You know, it, this is, 
You know, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul uses the perfect tense all the time, but you'd never know it from the translations. Uh, uh, He says, if Christ is not raised, is not risen, that's a gegertai. That is a perfect tense. If he, I like to translate it like this for St. Paul. If Christ is not up, see, if he is not arisen, he is not up, he is not alive, your faith is vain. It is not if Christ has not been raised, as if there's something that's just in the past at some point. It is the current enduring result of this that is important. So in Mark's case here, it is Jesus as the crucified one. Paul is talking about Jesus being up. I'm glad you picked up on that. Thank you. Well, and let's let's talk a little bit more about that. Because I, I mean, I've I've been thinking about that this whole weekend with Good Friday all the way through yesterday when Sunday and still today, that there maybe is this tendency among us as as Christians to see. Well, so we talked about social media earlier and, and something you saw on Twitter. I, I've seen something on on Facebook recently that that says you know it's Friday and all these bad things have happened. Peter denied Jesus. Judas betrayed him. It looks like death has won. And then it it, it says at the end, but Sunday is coming. And and my struggle with that is the word, but I think that, that but Sunday is coming as if, I, I don't, and it seems like the fact that Jesus is still called the crucified one, even after he's raised from the dead, maybe we should say, and some, Sunday is coming, or I'm, well, I'm not sure how to, how to resolve that in my mind. Can oh, you help yeah. me out there? Yeah. Well, uh, I agree with you. And Sunday is coming, but if we can just go back to chapter 15 of Mark, um, this is already on the cross, already in the cross scene. So um, it says in Mark 15, 33, uh, that darkness, uh, when the sixth hour had come, darkness came over the whole land or the whole earth until the ninth hour. And in the ninth hour, Jesus, now if you're following me with the ESV, would you just tell me what the ESV says at the beginning of verse 34? What does it say happened at the ninth hour? At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice. Okay. Eloi, Eloi. Now that, and so forth. Right. Now that's not right, because kradzo is the verb for to cry out. Matthew does use that verb. But Mark uses the verb boao, which means shout. It is used all throughout Greek literature and the Septuagint to be a shout of strength, of joy, of victory. Um, This is used, for example, by Demosthenes when he's describing Philip of Macedon, Alexander the Great's father, <clears throat> that his voice, you know, booms out and so on. And so he yelled out with a loud voice. Now, now when it says with a loud voice, you have got to understand that the people on the cross essentially are being suffocated. That's why you die on a cross. You can't exhale. You become, um, uh, the carbon dioxide overcomes you. 
This is why they wanted to break Jesus's legs, you know, in uh, in the Gospel of John. They wanted to break the legs so that the guys can't push themselves up and breathe. Once they can't push themselves up, they essentially suffocate. <clears throat> so Jesus, and I, I want you to get this scene. <clears throat> Jesus is on the cross, and he's on the cross for six hours. And suddenly he yells out with a loud voice. Now, this had to be completely striking had to be completely striking. And so then it says um, uh, later, verse 37 now, and Jesus shooting forth a loud voice. This is actually more technically the place where Demosthenes uh, talks about uh, Philip of Macedon, is this shooting forth a loud voice. That verb, afiemi, in this context is, kind of blasting out, blasting out, exhaled, exhaled, expired, gave out the spirit. Matthew says he exhaled the spirit. This is not the normal way you talk about dying. Greek does not talk about dying like this. It uses other verbs like apotnesko and so on like this. So he, I, 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 my image of this, I wish we were live on TV, but it's kind of like Jesus roaring, kind of like that. Uh-huh. And that's what it says in verse 39. The centurion who is standing, standing opposite, directly opposite, seeing how he had expired. Why? The the Holy Spirit is being given out with that expiring, this powerful shot. And that's why he is able to confess that Jesus, truly man, this man was the Son of God. He was standing directly opposite Jesus and got the full, what would you say, blast of the expiration. This is a triumphant death on the cross. This is uh, Jesus grasping death by the throat. And so he's talking about, why have you forsaken me? That's the beginning of Psalm 22. But the end of Psalm 22 ends in complete triumph. So I encourage you to use your thing, not but there is Easter, and there is Easter. There's already triumph at the cross. And Easter tells us, yep, that is absolutely the case. And that, that cross with its forgiveness and its release of the Spirit is in power now. This is gospel, man. Yeah. Uh, that that is fantastic. One one of the other things that I noticed as you were as you were speaking the text, you used the word the words in English you know a couple times, and I'm mm-hmm. not sure if that's a, a technical term in English. What particularly at the end of of Mark, you know that they went out from right. the and I'm looking at the ESV here. You know that the ESV says they were afraid, and then you said you know, kind of kind of like <clears throat> that. How how does that 
how does that work? What what is Mark doing there at the end? And maybe that can lead us into a little bit of discussion onto the actual ending of Mark. Yeah, well, uh, that gar, gar, means four. That's not the fish, right? Not, not the gar, the fish. <laughs> no, right, but it's spelled the same way. Gar <laughs> is the conjunction that means four. Uh, and generally, it's not exactly an alternative to hati, which means because. Um, so the other word for um, because, for um, we, we will sometimes use for, would be a real reason. Like, he fell because he was running too fast. Okay, that gives you the reason. Gar <clears throat> gives you the uh, uh, warrant for why you're saying something. So, for example, if I say this, it's raining outside because the windows are wet. Now, the bin- windows being wet are not the cause of it raining outside. It is, it's raining outside, and I know this because the windows are wet. The windows being wet is my warrant for saying that it's raining outside. That's the way gar is used. So, but it also has another use, and that's the you know use, where you are um, giving little additional pieces of information that the person sort of already knows. There's one of those in verse 4. I thought you might reference that one, too. Because I said that upon looking up, they see that the stone is rolled away. <clears throat> now, for it was very large. Well, now, this for because it was very large is not the cause of them um, uh, see that the stone being rolled away. It, this is what it is. They see the stone is rolled away. It was a big one, you know, because that's why they were wondering about this. So, um, by the way, I'm not making this up. Plato has this use of gar um, in the Phaedo and in other writings. I've got it in the commentary. Um, But that same use of gar occurs at the end, in my opinion. So, they fled from the tomb for uh, uh, trembling and astonishment had them in its grip, had them. And they said nothing to anyone. They were afraid, you know? Just like you're afraid, you know? You know what I'm talking about here. See, that that's the thing. It's that you know is you know what I'm talking about, that you would be afraid with something like this. You've got nothing but this word and everything looks like darkness at this point but if you believe and go to galilee you're gonna see him so um uh it it's important to see the possibilities in greek of this little word gar and it's not just kind of a straight causal word it's either giving the warrant or kind of bringing up what people already know. With that, I mean, gar is the actual, in in Greek, that's the way verse 8 ends. And Mm -hmm. 
maybe that, and, and even when you say it in English, you know, you end the whole of the gospel of Mark with, you know, or gar mm -hmm. in Greek. Now, yeah. just to, to talk a little bit about this, this textual ending, you know, anyone can open right. up their English standard version. And after verse eight, it says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, nine to 20. And we've, we've talked a little bit about this in, in various aspects of our show this morning. We've got about 10 minutes here, Dr. Veltz. But just sure. to get us started on this, what, what is the textual evidence that is there with the ending of the Gospel of Mark? Well, there are two rather major manuscripts uh, generally considered um, the best manuscripts for the Gospels. I would narrow it, frankly, a little more than that. Um, I've done very extensive work in this in terms of the Greek profile of the Gospel of Mark, and I would say that uh, uh, the two manuscripts, Aleph and B, uh, are the best manuscripts for this Gospel. They're generally the best also for the other Gospels, um, maybe not so much as they are for Mark, but for the Gospel of Mark, and that's what we're talking about now, they are the best representatives of the Greek text throughout the Gospel of Mark. They end at 16.8. Now, two other things are important here, and it's not just the manuscript evidence this way. One is this, that a number of early church fathers, including Eusebius of Caesarea, who lived right at the time of the Council of Nicaea, he wrote in a letter to a man named Marinus, and he discusses this business of the ending of Mark. And he says that what we call 16.9 to 20, the long ending, is not presented in all of the copies of the gospel according to Mark. He then goes on to say that the accurate ones of the copies circumscribe the end of the narrative according to Mark with the words of the young man who appeared to the women and spoke to them, followed by the words of 16.8, which ends with Ephabuntagar, for they were afraid, or they were afraid, you know. And then he says this, in this way, just about in all of the copies of the Gospel of Mark, the end is circumscribed. But he goes on to say, but in some copies, it also goes on to give the long ending. Now, let me just summarize what I said there. <clears throat> So Eusebius says that in the best copies, it ends at what we call 16.8. Uh, he says that some other copies do have the long ending, but that in at his time, in just about all of the copies, it ends with what we would call the short ending. Now, Eusebius is an important figure here because he was more or less the top scholar at his time. He was tabbed by the Emperor Constantine, who, people may remember, uh, made Christianity 
legal. And uh, so when this happened, this was shortly before the Council of Nicaea. He asked, I'm talking about Constantine now, he asked Eusebius to prepare 50 copies of the Bible in Greek, Old Testament and New Testament. So for the Old Testament, not the Hebrew, but the Greek Septuagint, and then the New Testament, the Greek New Testament that we have. Eusebius was in charge of this. So he would have had his finger on the pulse of, you know, what would you say, scholarship at that time. And so he tells us this at this time, the guy specifically tabbed by the Emperor Constantine to produce the 50 copies. It is likely there's a fellow um, who died now not so long ago. He was actually about 100 years old when he died, a man by the name of T.C. Skeet, S-K-E-A-T. And he was the curator of manuscripts in the British Museum in the 30s, 1930s, when uh, manuscript Sinaiticus was brought into the British Museum. Well, he has an extensive study of this, especially of Eusebius's correspondence with Constantine and so on. And he believes that these two manuscripts are essentially two of the 50 manuscripts uh, that Eusebius put together for Constantine's 50. Uh, surely Vaticanus, manuscript B, he thinks maybe Sinaiticus was kind of like an early version that didn't quite make it or something like that, like a trial run. Um, but um, uh, the importance of Eusebius and what he says cannot be played down here. Uh, and then I'll, I'll give you one last thing. Eusebius has a kind of an interesting little cross-reference system called the Canons, C-A-N-O-N-S, Eusebius's canons, and he has these, he put these um, in, in his uh, editions so that you could cross-reference, like, you know, where would you find the walking on the water in between the, the uh, Gospels and so on like that. Well, he does not extend this cross-reference system to what we call the long ending. Well, it shows you because there's some, you know, some people say, well, yeah, Eusebius says this, but he actually personally believed the long ending was was uh, genuine. Well, he didn't because he didn't extend those those uh, canons, the cross reference system to the long ending. Um, uh, let me just say one further thing. This is the only place I know of in the entire Greek New Testament where the manuscripts, I want you to listen to this carefully, the manuscripts themselves actually have comments in them discussing where it should end. So let me say that again. This is the only place where in the manuscripts themselves, there's like comments in the margin about the problem of the ending. So, for example, a, a, a group of manuscripts uh, that's very important says something like this. In some of the copies, 
up until here, the evangelists uh, brings it to completion. And this is written right at 16.8. Until where Eusebius, the follower of Pamphilus, did his canons. But in many others, also these things are presented. And then follows 16.9-20. So there's, there's actual discussion in the in the manuscripts themselves, about where this where this would end. Now I'm I'm kind of having you drink from a fire hose here a little bit on this to make the following point. People will sometimes think that all of the copies of the New Testament of the Gospels, the Gospel of Mark, end at. 20, you know, contain 9 to 20. And then it's only later on that in the 19th century, scholars started to say it should only end at 16.8. That's not true. That's not true. The evidence of the early church is that this was an issue that they were well aware of. And um, as I say, Eusebius contends that the best copies ended at at uh, 16.8. You know, now, there's, I'm, I'm taking that tack with you this morning. I could talk about the Greek, the actual Greek of the long ending, which is, I think, substantially different than the Greek of chapter 1.1 to 16.8. All right? And I've done really heavy study of this in the commentary, what I would call the Greek profile of Mark, and there's all kinds of stuff that's quite different in the long ending, all right? That's a whole technical argument, and for this show, with the listenership, it's probably not worth talking about using demonstrative pronouns as subjects and stuff like that. I mean, that's way too technical stuff. But uh, just this, the historical and manuscript background of this question is is quite important, and uh, uh, I'm, I'm glad that you brought up the issue. Dr. Veltz, thank you so much for being our guest this morning on Mark 16, 1-8, for pointing us to the truth that Christ is risen from the dead, and that is good news for us. We know it's true because of Jesus' reliable word. I'm your host here on Sharp Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.